Good morning. It's great to see all of you here this morning. The story is told of a husband and wife who had a miserable marriage, largely because the man was a tyrant. Truth is, he was just plain mean. On his deathbed, he told his wife, I want you to convert all of our assets to cash and, and leave it by an upstairs window. I will pick it up on my way to heaven when I die. Being the dutiful wife and because of his incessant hounding, she obeyed his instructions. A few days later, sure enough, he died. After the funeral, she went upstairs to find the suitcase still sitting by the window. She thought to herself, I knew I should have put it in the basement. We all want to take some with us. Reminds me of another story, yet another rich man wanted to take some with him, so he gave his friends, a pastor, a doctor, and a lawyer, $100,000 each, and asked them to slip it in his coffin when he died. After the funeral, the three were talking, the pastor's conscience got the better of him, and he admitted, I only put in 75000 The doctor said, I only put in 50000 the lawyer said, I am shocked at both of you. I put in a check for the full amount. <laughs> we all want to take some with us. But the truth is, we know that we will leave it all behind. Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will return. And so, a last will and testament are the instructions of the deceased as to what to do with his or her estate. An executor is usually named, beneficiaries are listed, my son gets this, my daughter gets that. Sometimes you don't actually know what you'll get until the reading of the will. For example, Leona Helmsley died in 2007, leaving behind a four, maybe five billion dollar estate. Having outlived her children, she left part of her estate, $10 million each, to two of her four grandchildren. That's right. Two she cut out for, quote, reasons known to them. Nice lady. What is famous about her will is that she left $12 million to her eight-year-old Maltese named Trouble. That's a dog. So he could continue to live in, quote, luxury. By the way, the brother was left to care for, for the dog. I would have taken care of the mutt for about half that. <laughs> a year or two ago, my, my father-in-law called to, to ask if I would be the executor of his estate. I said, sure, what do I get? We actually have a great relationship. We were good friends even before I started dating his daughter. Yes, that's the reason that I was good friends with him, because I was after his daughter. My, uh, an executor has the responsibility to make sure that the estate is distributed according to the will. So my job will be to make sure his heirs, my daughter, um, gets, I mean, my, my wife, his daughter, gets what he says. So... Um, think about the last will and testament with me for a moment. Last will and testament. My, my father-in-law has to die before anyone gets anything, right? I mean, he lives in Montana. It's not like I can board a plane, fly to Missoula, get the keys to the Cadillac, 
or boat, he has both, and say, I think I'll be taking these now. He would shoot me. <laughs> now, the, the, the last will and testament comes, only comes into effect when he dies, when there is a death. That's the way that it works. <laughs> and think about it, nothing separates a family like a will. Money. Because we all want to know, what do I get? In the Greek, the word covenant that we've been talking about is the word diatheke. It's translated that way every time that it appears in the New Testament, except in our text today in Hebrews. You, you see, the word can also mean last will and testament, which, by the way, is why our Bibles contain both the Old and New Testaments. That, that, that is, the Old and New diatheke would be better, actually, to call them the Old and New Covenants. Well, our author of Hebrews has been talking about the, the, the New Covenant and how it is infinitely better than the Old. It has a better high priest, better promises, better sacrifices, a better tabernacle, things like that. We've been looking at that for weeks. But today, our author capitalizes on the other meaning of that word, diatheke, covenant, uh, and uses this idea of last will and testament. It's sort of a play on words. And, and he reminds us that there, there must be a death before a will comes into effect. And there was a death, a specific death. And the beneficiaries of the will, think of it as God's will, receive a better inheritance. In fact, he calls it an eternal inheritance. Look at our text, Hebrews chapter 9, verses 15 and following say this. For this reason, because Jesus offered himself in his own blood as a sacrifice, for this reason, he is the mediator of a new covenant, diatheke. So that since a death has taken place for the redemption of the transgressions that were committed under the first diatheke, covenant, those who have been called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. For where a, now my translation has it covenant, but better, for, for where a will is, there must of necessity be the death of the one who made it. For a will is valid only when men are dead. For it is never enforced while the one who made it lives. Therefore, even the first covenant was not inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment had been spoken by Moses to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of the calves and the goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, this is the blood of the covenant which God commanded you. And in the same way, he sprinkled both the tabernacle, all the vessels of the ministry, with the blood. And according to the law... One may almost say all things are cleansed with blood. Because without shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. And that is, after all, what the tabernacle was for, you see. Sacrifices, the shedding of blood, death for forgiveness. Now, as I have suggested in the past, this author is quite brilliant bringing out every nuance of truth found in this comparison and contrast between the Old and, and New Covenants. Now, now, why does he do that? Well, we've seen because his readers were, were Jewish believers, converts from Judaism or the Old Covenant to Jesus, the Gospel, and the New Covenant. 
But, but as a result of their new faith, severe persecution had come, and, and they were actually considering abandoning Christ and the gospel and returning to the old covenant. So, so, so our author writes to both warn and encourage them. We've looked at, at three of his warnings, two are yet to come, but his encouragement has been, <laughs> Jesus is better in every way. Jesus is better. You see, the new covenant he brought is better than the old covenant. Now, that may a bit, be a bit confusing to you. To be sure, the old covenant was not worthless. After all, it was inaugurated by God. It did provide a measure of forgiveness and, and grace. But it was, and I want you to remember these two words about the old covenant. It was both temporary and typological. That is, it was temporary in that once it had served its purpose, it is now obsolete, and it was typological in that it was always intended to point to something greater to come, namely Jesus and his sacrifice. As such, the new covenant has replaced the old, fulfilled the old, and has come with better promises. And we read here a better inheritance. We'll come back to that as we close this morning. Now, let's look at these verses for just a moment before uh, we are reminded of the better inheritance, before we read the well. What do I get? Simple outline looks like this. We're going to see death was required under the new covenant, death required under the old covenant, and the necessity of death for this will to be enacted, you see. Last week, we ended with the author's lesser to greater argument in verse 14, how much more, we talked about the, the blood of bulls and goats, but how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, how much more will that cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? And, and so, Jesus since Jesus offered himself as a sacrifice, shedding his own blood, dying in our place to cleanse us, notice, not just externally, but from the inside out, verse 15, for this reason, because his sacrifice and blood was better, he is the mediator of something better, namely a new covenant. We've seen this. The author has said over and over things like the Levitical priests, especially the high priest, served as a mediator between God and his people, namely the Jews. And, and under the Levitical system, they would offer sacrifices, blood, for atonement to reconcile sinful people, listen, to a rightly offended, holy God. Say that again, to a rightly offended holy God. I was reading a book just this week, and, and, and the author suggests that's something that we've lost that we need to regain. The thing that we've lost is, is the magnitude of our sin. How our rebellion has set us as enemies of God. He wrote that book over 100 years ago. So what would he say about our culture today? You see, I have found that it is not too difficult to get people to understand that they are indeed sinners, that they do something wrong. But here's, here's the challenge today. So what? 
Who cares? Everybody's a sinner. Everybody does things wrong. And we've lost the magnitude of our sin and our rebellion. So also Christ is the mediator of a new covenant so that since a death, since a death has taken place, that begins to paint the picture of the magnitude of our sin. Since the death has taken place for the redemption of the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant. Stop right there a moment. We need to flesh that out. When transgressions were committed before by people in the Old Testament, there needed to be the shedding of blood that ultimately were atoned for by the blood of Christ. When transgressions were committed before and frankly now by us under the first or the old covenant, what were those transgressions? Well, the old covenant included the law of Moses summed up in the Ten Commandments. All all the things that we are supposed to do and and not do. You, you, You need to understand that the law is still intended to expose us as sinners, to magnify our sin, and to drive us to Christ. It still does that work today. In other words, it's still right to honor God. It's still wrong to have other gods before him. It's still wrong to make a carved idol of him. It's still wrong, by the way, to take his name in vain. It is still right to honor your parents. It is still wrong to murder, to commit adultery, to steal, to lie, to covet. And I don't have to convince you that we've all been guilty. That's not difficult in one way or another, listen, of breaking every one of those laws. All of them. All of us. Especially when we remember that Jesus drove those commandments home to the heart where they always belonged anyway. Such that to lust after a woman, Jesus said, it's to commit adultery with her in your heart. Jesus' words. And, and so, yes, pornography matters. To be angry with someone is to, to murder that person. Do you see? From the heart. And every time we count something or someone of more value than God, we've erected an idol and put something before him. And every time we've told a little white lie or or deceived or or not been content, but rather coveted what others have, we have sinned, do you see? We've broken all of them. And so we've transgressed the law of God, making us guilty with guilty consciences. And by the way, that's what the conscience is for uh, anyway, to either accuse or excuse our actions. You see, all of us have an innate morality within us. What are the arguments for the existence of God? Across the globe, across time, everybody has understood innately what right and wrong is. And we also know in our heart of hearts that we have in fact violated that morality. We've done wrong. Our consciences accuse us. Maybe it keeps you up at night. Paul says it this way in Romans 2. For when Gentiles, that's most of us here, For when Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law, these, not having the law, the Gentiles, are a law to themselves. 
in that they show that the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience, there it is, bearing witness and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them, when on the day, when according to the gospel, my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus. So, so all, all those times that your conscience has said to you that was wrong, judgment is coming. We're all guilty. But the good news is this. Jesus, the, the unblemished, perfect, sinless, very Son of God, bore our sins, every last one of them, in his body on the cross, dying in our place so that we could be redeemed, verse 15. We talked about that last week. Forgiven so that those who are effectually called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. We get, we're in the will. We have an inheritance. We'll come back to that when we close. Alfred goes on to explain how, when, where, there is, where this new covenant is, there must of necessity be a death of the one who made it. For a covenant, or better, a will, is only valid when the one who makes the will dies. We, we understand that. Again, this is where the author focuses on that other definition of the word diatheke. The, the makers of a covenant, for example, don't necessarily have to die. Think about that. We call it a marriage covenant. And the bride or the groom, one of them doesn't have to die in order for it to be effective, thank God. No, he's talking about a last will and testament. So before you get the eternal inheritance, there had to be a death. And there was. In this case, in the case of the new covenant, it was Jesus. And we remember the magnitude of our sin. And don't miss this. How, how can Jesus be both the, the mediator of the covenant? Think of the executor, making sure everyone gets what they're supposed to, and the one who dies to, 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 to make the will valid. How can he be both the testator and the executor? How? Because of this thing called the resurrection. Yes, he died, but he did not stay dead. That's what the author is going to talk about in verses 23 and following to the end of the chapter. He, he presented his sacrifice in the heavenly tabernacle. This is absolutely amazing. We are the recipients of the promises of the new covenant found in the gospel through the death, yes, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ so that right now he is mediator, he is executor, so that by faith in Jesus and his finished work, his death brought the last will and testament of God, the last will of God, into effect, and we thereby receive the eternal, uh, the eternal inheritance. So, let me ask you, what do we get? Uh, think of it this way for just a moment. As you think about your earthly life, what is it that you are holding out for uh, when mom or dad die? You're kind of hoping you're in the will, and maybe, you know, that maybe sounds a little morbid to think about it, but, but come on, what are you holding out for? What do you hope to get? 
can I remind you that whatever it is that you get, you will eventually leave and pass on to your heirs. And so how does this compare with the eternal inheritance that we have in Jesus? All of a sudden, all that fighting, familial fighting over wills, fates. The author's making clear in terms of a covenant and the will, there had to be a death. Why? Well, even the first covenant, the old covenant, required a death. Point two, verses 18 to 21. Therefore, even the first covenant was not inaugurated. That is, it was not put into effect without blood. We looked at this a few weeks ago in Exodus 20. God gave Moses the law, summarized in the Ten Commandments. He had delivered them from Egypt and brought them safely to Mount Sinai. There on top of the mountain, God gave the people through Moses the provisions of that old covenant. Here's the law, he says, now keep it. Oh, and when you break it, here's the sacrificial system by which you will find forgiveness. And so in the future, the mediators of that covenant were also identified at Mount Sinai. There were the Levitical priests embodied in the high priest who would act as a mediator, an executor, if you will, between God and his people. And, and so before Moses even went up to the mountain, we read these words in Exodus 19. Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, sons of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now then, if you will, listen, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, which they didn't, they broke it continually, just like us then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples for all the earth is mine. This has been the intent of creation from the very beginning that God would have a people for himself, you see. You shall be a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the sons of Israel. Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words which the Lord had commanded them. And all the people answered together and said, hey, we're in. All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Only they didn't. Committed to the covenant that Moses was about to get up on the mountain. So God called Moses up and gave him the law, summed up again in the Ten Commandments. Moses came back down, told the people all the words which God had given him. Chapters 20 to 23, or yeah, 20 to 23. And, and we read this response of the people. All the words which the Lord has spoken we will do. They offered some burnt offerings and some peace offerings. Moses took the book of the covenant and read it to the people. And they replied again, all that the Lord has spoken we will do and we will be obedient Right. Exodus 24, verse 8, important verse. So Moses took the blood from those sacrifices and sprinkled, sprinkled it on the people and said, Behold the blood of the covenant, what Hebrews quotes, which the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Stipulations of the covenant have been agreed upon. We have now entered into a mutual covenant, God with his people, and they rebelled. The author of Hebrews reminds us of this event, saying when every commandment had been spoken by Moses to all the people according to the law, Moses took the blood of the calves and the goat with water, scarlet, wool and hyssop, that's just like Numbers 19, he sprinkled the book of the law itself, the, the law, he sprinkled blood on it, 
And then on the people. This is the blood of the covenant which God commanded. Now stop right there just a moment. Familiar words, but it's actually a bit gross. Gather around. Reminds me of the time I took my kids when you were, when it was okay to do, it was PC to do this. I took my kids to SeaWorld. Don't tell anybody. And um, so I took them to SeaWorld and we went and saw Shamu, the killer whale. Remember that? How many of you been there? Don't admit it. And so, <laughs> and so you go to watch Shamu and you, and you go sit in the first 12 rows, as I recall. It's called the what? See, you have been there. <laughs> It's called the splash zone. And the boys, they always wanted to go down. Go right on ahead, not me. And they would get drenched with salt water. But us sitting, we'd always sit in the 13th or 14th row. We'd still get sprinkled. Imagine. Gather around, children. That could actually, the word could actually be translated, he threw the blood of the covenant on them and on the book. Verse 21 says, on the tabernacle and all the vessels. Read through Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers, and you find the presence of blood everywhere. Why? For purification, for cleansing, for setting apart, sanctifying the people, that people, the Jews, and those things for God. Why? Why blood? Verse 22. According to the law, you could almost say everything is cleansed by blood. And we remember over the past couple of weeks, it was an external, temporary cleansing. It was not permanent, nor was it complete. It was never intended to cleanse the conscience of the people because it could not. Rather, it pointed to something greater to come, a fulfillment to which all of the old covenant pointed because without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. So barbaric. This has always been God's way. It's always been God's plan from the beginning of time to the death of Christ. You can trace the necessity of the shedding of blood for forgiveness all the way from the Garden of Eden to the cross of Christ. Consider when Adam and Eve sinned. <laughs> Here you go. Here's a garden. Do whatever it is that you want except that. That's the one thing that they did. You would have done it too. They became aware of their own sin they tried to hide their own nakedness. They covered themselves with what? Fig leaves. And God said, that will never do. That will never atone for your sins. So God clothed them in animal skins. Where did those come from? Most suggest that they were the skins of animals offered for atonement because without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Consider the next story, Cain and Abel. They, they both brought a sacrifice, uh, gifts to God. Abel's was accepted, Cain's was not. Why? Because Cain brought the produce of, of harvest, while Abel brought animals from the flock. Because without the shedding of blood, without death, there is no forgiveness. Trace the idea all the way through the Old Testament, through the sacrificial system, through the Day of Atonement, and we find without the shedding of blood, there is no atonement. Consider when Jesus came, over and over we are told he would save his people from their sins. How? When John first identified him, he said, John the Baptist first identified him, he said, behold the Lamb of God. 
who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus himself said, I, can, I came not to be served, but to serve and to give my life a ransom for many. Because without the shedding of blood, there is no sin. Without death, there is no covenant, there is no will, and there are no beneficiaries. It is what God required. Barbaric, maybe you think that this morning. Maybe you think, you know, as, as Michael said, this is the 21st century. Come, come on. You need to update your message. I have prayed for you this week. I have prayed that the Holy Spirit would convict you of sin. Because I'm reading that book that reminded me that I, no matter what I do, no amount of words that I share can convict you of sin. Read John chapter 16, verses 8 and following, and we see that the, the other counselor that Jesus is sending, the other comforter, the paraclete, the Holy Spirit, he will convict the world of what? Sin. What sin? All sin. But very interestingly, in the very next verse, Jesus said he will convict them because they have not believed in me. Outdated? Barbaric? A, a, a thing of the past? Something to be dismissed? My prayer has been that the Holy Spirit would convict you of the sin of not <laughs> believing in Jesus. Just a moment by way of conclusion. Let's go back to our introduction. Will... Last will and testament requires the death of the testator in, in order for the beneficiaries to receive the inheritance. Jesus died, bringing the new covenant. Uh, yes, he did not stay dead. As such, those who believe in him and his work received a, the promised eternal inheritance. We are the beneficiaries known by the Father from the foundation of the world. So, so don't you want to know, what do we get? Time to read the will. As we close briefly, let's review our inheritance spelled out, just briefly, spelled out by the author of Hebrews thus far. Again, listen as I read the will of which you are beneficiaries if you believe the gospel first. He started this way back, having in chapter one proven the superiority of Jesus to angels. He's better, remember? He gets to chapter two and he says, when Jesus took on flesh and blood at his incarnation, through his death, he re rendered, listen, he rendered powerless the devil who till that time had power over death. And as a result, we who were subject to fear all of our lives need no longer fear. The, the top survey after survey reveals that one of the top fears that people face is the fear of death. Have you thought about it? Have you had nightmares about it? I want to say to you, we need not fear death and what lies beyond the grave, not if you have an eternal inheritance. Second, through his incarnation and death, Jesus became a merciful and faithful high priest for us, making propitiation. That, what, what is that word? What does that mean? 
Well, it means the reason that we need not fear death anymore is because Jesus turned away God's wrath that was rightly pointed at us because of the magnitude of our sin. Do you see? Third, when Jesus was tempted to quit, when he wanted to give in as he thought about the cross, because of his sufferings, because he did not, he is able to help us when we are also tempted to quit. When we face the sufferings of being Christians, remember who he's writing to. When you face the ridicule and the sufferings and the persecution for being Christians, you can remember our great high priest did not quit. Number four, because Jesus ascended to heaven as our great high priest, because he was tempted in every way as we are, he is able to sympathize with our weaknesses. So we can actually listen to this. We can draw near They couldn't do that in the Old Covenant. We can draw near to find, to to receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. Five, don't miss this, because of his obedience, Jesus has become for us the source of eternal salvation. And Jesus actually said that he was the only source of eternal salvation. Through faith in him, we can be eternally saved from our sin and certain consequent destruction. Sixth, because he is our high priest, we have an anchor for our souls. Are you, are, are you, are you feeling tossed, and, and, and tossed about in the, in the storms of life? You're feeling anxious? You, you're feeling the challenges of, of, of what lies ahead? We have an anchor for our souls, a rock-solid hope, sure and steadfast. We can rest in confidence because Jesus has entered behind the veil for us. Seventh, Jesus has become a guarantee, the absolute assurance of a better covenant. What does that mean? It means that he is able to save those who do draw near to God through him forever because he forever makes intercession for him. That's our guarantee. Eighth, Jesus has brought the new covenant with, the author told us, better promises. Namely, that through the work of Christ, God takes out our, this is chapter 8, takes out our dead, cold hearts of stone and gives us hearts of flesh. And he gives, and he has given us his very Holy Spirit to live within us so that we can be different people. Bringing us to chapter 9, a ninth promise regarding our eternal inheritance. Through his blood, Jesus accomplished something that the blood of animals could never do. He's given us forgiveness, yes, but not just externally so, internally so, such that we can have right now clean, clear consciences. Does that not sound good? And all that leads to the final one. We get God as our God, and we actually get to be his people the point of creation. This is why he made us, so that he would have a people for himself. And we can be those people. We can draw near to God. And so listen to me as I close this morning. Are you, listen, are you tired of your guilt? Do you, for this moment, recognize the magnitude of your sin and your rebellion? Do do you understand that your rebellion drove Jesus to die? How big is your sin? Jesus died for it. But I want you to understand that as a result of that, there is an eternal inheritance that awaits. There is 
hope, there is healing, there is health, there is forgiveness through the cross of Jesus Christ.